1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Bliss, the show that helps you find and follow your bliss. I'm Judy Brack, and today I'm joined by award-winning author, entertainer, and teacher Richard Scarsbrook, whose latest novel, here it is, The Troopers, was so much fun to read and pretty compelling as well. I can't stop thinking about it and those characters, but we'll get to that soon, the book is chock full of trivia from the golden age of Hollywood. And the setting is Niagara Falls and tells the story of a family of quintuplets and the youngest who can never live up to his father's wild expectations. And I'm fascinated about this dysfunctional showbiz family made up of aging child stars, their narcissistic, powerful, somewhat abusive, womanizing father, diva grandmother And the mother who probably could have gone on to become the greatest star of all, but never got the chance. How much of this is from imagination? And how much of this is drawn from the author's real life? Can't wait to find out all about that and more. I'm excited to also tell you more about Richard Scarsbrook, where he's been and where he's going. And of course, to share some fantastic writing tips for any aspiring novelists screenwriters or writers out there, I hear he is simply the best as a writing teacher. Also, later on in the program, we'll be featuring the music of talented singer-songwriter Sage. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about Richard Scarsbrook. So Richard grew up in the tiny rural crossroads of Olinda, Ontario, and earned an honors BA in history from Western University and a Bachelor of Education degree from the University of Ottawa. He has called Toronto home for over 20 years. Richard is the author of 10 books, the latest of which is The Troopers. you got to get this book. It's fabulous. So it's The Troopers. It's Rockets Versus Gravity, The Indifference League, Nothing Man, and The Purple Zero, The Monkey Face Chronicles, great title, Featherless Bipeds, and Cheeseburger Subversive, The Short Story Collection, Destiny's Telescope, and The Poetry Collections, Six weeks and Apocalypse 100. Two more novels are on the way The Girl Who Could Not Die and Speedway Cinema. He has also published stories and poems in nearly 100 magazines journals, and anthologies. Richard's books have been shortlisted for the Relit Award, that's R-E-L-I-T Award, the CLA Book of the Year Award twice, the Stellar Book Prize, and the OLA White Pine Award also twice, which he won in 2011 for the Monkey Face Chronicles. His poetry chapbook, Guessing at Madeline* won the 1997 Cranberry Tree Press Poetry Chapbook Competition. He also won the Matrix Lit Pop Award, the Hinterland Award for Prose. This goes on and on and on. The Lawrence House Centre for the Arts Short Story Competition, the New Orphic Short Story Prize, the Scarborough Arts Council (laughs) Poetry Competition. And he has been a finalist for the Exile Vanderbilt Short Story Prize, the Sean O'Faulain Short Story Prize, the Fish Short Story Prize, that is a mouthful, and the New Century Writer Awards. After teaching high school for several years, performing roles on stage such as Mr. Toad in Toad of Toad Hall, Graciano in The Merchant of Venice, Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, and Jonathan Brewster in Arsenic and Old Lace, and playing also in bands, he's also a musician, well, The No, The Nerve, and Featherless Bipeds, Scarsbrook now teaches creative writing at George Brown College and the Humber School for Writers. He makes frequent appearances at festivals and in schools and libraries, sharing his passion for writing and helping hundreds of novice writers improve their craft. He has served as writer in residence for the Toronto Public Library, the Toronto District Board of Education, the Richmond Hill Public Library and the Orangeville Public Library. In 2011, Scarsbrook also served as a juror for the Governor General's Literary Awards. Richard is currently transitioning into the screenwriting business and his first produced screenplay, Royal Blood, was an official selection at many international film festivals. And it actually won Best Short Film at the TIFF Associated Milton Film Festival and its North American pay TV rights have been purchased by the Shorts TV channel. Scarsbrook has written screenplays and pilots based on his award-winning books, which are currently available. His TV pilot, The Monkey Face Chronicles, was a finalist for the CFC E1 Television Adaptation Lab, and his screenplays have been performed well in major screenwriting competitions, including ScreenCraft, Page, Slam dance and final draft, big break. Richard Scarsbrook, welcome to Finding Your Bliss.
0: Thank you for having me, Judy. I'm uh, I'm so excited to be here. Wow, did I did I really do all that stuff?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I've been impressed myself reading all about this and reading about you. And as you know, and we've discussed this in the virtual green room before the show, I first heard about you from my Uncle Barry, who absolutely loved your writing workshops and classes. And I can't wait to share some of your writing tips later on in the program. But first, I know you have said, I read this about you, that everything you do is just a means to an end to do what you love doing the most, which is writing. What is it that you love about writing and the writing process in general?
0: Uh, I mean, that's an easy question and a difficult one all at once. Uh, I've been passionate about the written word and about storytelling, both reading and writing stories since I was a small child. I mean... I have a five-year-old who already is showing tendencies toward wanting to be entertaining and making up stories and telling stories. And I feel like I was the same way. I wanted to make things up. I wanted to tell stories that people wanted to pay attention to. And I guess I enjoyed having that audience from the time I was a small child. So It's just been something I've always wanted to do, and I didn't really feel like there was any choice about it. It was the path that I needed to follow, so I did.
1: Something very auspicious happened to you, though, in school when you were asked to do an assignment, and you kind of twisted it and did something extremely creative and resourceful with that assignment. Can you tell us about that story? and And is that when you realized you really had a gift for writing?
0: Sure. Yeah. So that that that's a, wow. You did your homework, Judy. That's a a pretty deep cut. Huh? Uh, so yeah, when I was in grade six at ruthven public school which no longer exists but uh when i was a kid there i had a a great teacher that year and uh she did something to inspire us to write stories that i try to do in my own adult classes now which is to uh give prompts that are open-ended that allow the writer to write about something they want to write about rather than something that the teacher says they have to so it was unusual when on this one day she would just write a prompt up on the board and would say nothing and you're expected to just do what you wanted to do with it so on this day she wrote the words hurricane hazel up on the chalkboard and uh I mean, some people of a certain age or from Toronto will know what Hurricane Hazel was. It was a a hurricane that hit Toronto, I think, in the 50s and caused widespread destruction. And, you know, if you lived through that or knew about it, it was a huge news story and a big deal. I, however, am not quite old enough to have lived through Hurricane Hazel. And I'm from Southwestern Ontario. At the time, Toronto seemed like this magical metropolis a million (laughs) miles away from where I grew up. So, you know, dutifully, a couple of uh, uh, kids from class went up to the encyclopedias. That dates me a bit, I guess, too, but cracked an encyclopedia, found out Hurricane Hazel was indeed this unusual hurricane that hit Toronto, blah, blah, blah. And so most of the kids in my class wrote a story about what they thought it might be like to be caught unexpectedly in a hurricane. But I didn't know anything about that. So uh, I decided what I wanted to write about that day, I wanted to write about a back road car race. So uh, I want the capsule of the story because I still remember it. And uh, a grade six teacher thought it was pretty funny and (laughs) actually invited me into the staff room to read it to uh, the other teachers. Anyway, so. The story went something like this: There's a a guy in one of the most terrible cars ever made, a 1982 Chevette. Uh, I later <laughs> owned one, ironically, and uh, he pulls up next to some, you know, a guy in a '69 Mustang with a big block V8, and rolls down the window and you know challenges the guy to a street race. And the guy in the Mustang is in in my grade six story Uh, this already sounds like a story (laughs) written by a grade six boy right but rolls down the window and challenges this guy in the hot mustang to a street race and the the mustangs like uh okay you know if that's what you want and and the guy in the chevette says, okay, it's for pink slips. We're racing for each other's cars. And uh, the guy in the Mustang's like, well, I don't really want your crappy Chevette, but (laughs) sure. So uh, the light turns red. They both have the gas and the Chevette just goes flying away. (laughs) Uh, And by the next intersection, the Chevette is one. And so the punchline of the story, as written as a grade six boy, is uh, the guy in the Mustang is like, I've lost my (laughs) beloved Mustang. How could this have possibly happened? And the guy in the Chevette opens the hood. And under the hood is a V12 Merlin engine from a fighter plane (laughs) wedged into the tiny space in the Chevette. And, you know, the moral of the story was don't judge a book by its cover. So at the end, the question is, and I titled it Hurricane Hazel. The question is, well, okay, how did you veer that far away from the original topic? (laughs) Well, you know, back in the day of road racing, car guys or car girls even would often have a nickname painted on the back of the car and the nickname on this car was Hurricane Haze.
1: (gasps) Oh,
0: I love and that. And it was story. because it had a fighter plane engine from a hurricane fighter plane under the hood. Wow. Anyway, so that was how far I was willing to go <laughs> to not write about being trapped in a storm and uh, writing a story about a car race, anyway. And it's a sign of a good teacher that instead of my teacher being bugged that I didn't write anything about what she intended, she thought it was amazing that I'd gone that far to do something different. And wow. uh, even, like I said, brought me to the staff room to read it (laughs) to the other teachers who also found the story pretty funny and the backstory kind of funny. (laughs) And that was the moment where I thought, Wow, people paying attention to me for writing my convoluted little stories is kind of fun. And maybe I want to keep doing this.
1: That's so cool. I'm sure you got an A or an A plus on it.
0: Uh, Yeah, I don't even remember if I got a grade. The big thing was, you know, my classmates listened to me for 15 minutes and then so did all the teachers. And I thought, hmm, maybe this is the path for me.
1: That's very cool. That's a great story. (laughs) Thanks for sharing that. Let's talk about your 10th book, The Troopers. And congratulations on the book, by the way. It's really fabulous. Thank you. It kept me up many nights. (laughs) So it was one of those books that I'd go to bed at three in the morning reading. So it's fabulous. And I love the way you've set your newest novel as scenes, like in a screenplay, and set it against the backdrop of Niagara Falls in the entertainment world, featuring these fictional trooper quintuplets. At first I wondered, were they fictional or were they the real Dion quintuplets? But later realized that, you know, they were indeed original. And the characters are so compelling and three-dimensional and authentic, That I can actually picture John Lionel Trooper and Joan, who's reminiscent of Joan Crawford and Violet and Marigold, Olivia and Errol, the youngest of the five quintuplets. And I have to ask you, is Errol the only male and the youngest of the quintuplets of which the entire tale is told from his perspective based on you?
0: Well, you're asking that question that a lot of people fear to ask. And the, the answer is always yes and no. Earlier in my writing career, my first couple of books, definitely, they were funny coming-of-age books based on things that really happened to me when I was a teenager. And the idea is to take the real-life experience and transform it into the fictional version that just tells a better tale. And I'd say I'm coming at it from the opposite direction now, where I make up the characters and the details of the story to take the reader to a place I want them to go, mm-hmm. but there's—I can't deny that, especially when it's a you know a male primary narrator of a certain age. There's no way that aspects of my own personality can't creep into the character. So, uh, Errol's experiences are different than mine, but I would say in some ways, Errol is a similar person to me.
1: I I sort of really sense that because I really felt Errol was real, but I felt all of these characters were real, like they're really three dimensional, like they're living in my imagination now. It's amazing. Can you tell us more about the Troopers and what inspired you to write this absolutely delicious novel? And where did the idea of the quintuplets come from?
0: Well, first of all, I wanted to back up. You're not the first uh, reviewer or interviewer to say that they felt like the book seemed autobiographical and that the characters seem really alive. And I have to say, I mean, for other writers or potential writers that are listening, I feel like the characters in a story are the key component. If you have characters that live and breathe and feel real and have believable motivations and, uh, aren't all bad and aren't all good, but are actual human beings, your story can go a lot more places. So, uh, where the idea for the troopers came from is twofold. I wanted to have, uh, I like examining sibling relationships. And I've done that in other books. And I thought the ultimate sibling relationship would be a multiple birth situation where, uh, you know, you have five kids who are born on the same day, and it creates expectations that they then can live up to or break away from. So that was one idea. And then the other part of it was I really wanted to write sort of a TV slash theater family kind of story, because I have some amateur stage background and I'm getting into screenwriting and so on. And uh, I wanted to merge sort of that multiple birth scenario with the heightened drama and heightened personalities of stage and TV Mm. character types. So The Troopers is ultimately what resulted from wanting to do those two things.
1: Yes. And even their birth was on YouTube. The birth of these quintuplets was on YouTube. Like, I love that in the book. Were you from a large family? Was your childhood similar sort of a lot of siblings or or what was your childhood like?
0: Actually, no, I have uh, one younger sister and that's it. We have the stereotypical nuclear family, <laughs> mom, dad, girl, boy. Uh, but it's interesting. I have uh my sister and my own, our best friends in childhood came from a very large family, like eight kids lived out on a farm, um, shared rooms. And so by default, we kind of experienced that sort of family environment, even though it wasn't our own. So that may have informed some of what happens in the troopers. It's
1: just so rich and evocative. I love that the Trooper quintuplets had their family meetings often in the theater and you've described that listening to the father, John Lionel Trooper, was like listening, and I quote, to Fidel Castro's amplified voice echoing from the surrounding buildings or perhaps like Italians being bombarded by Benito Mussolini from <laughs> that balcony in Rome. And you write in the book that the character Errol finally learned from watching family sitcoms on Netflix years later, this character who was sheltered from all of pop culture. Years later, watching these family sitcoms on Netflix, realized that normal family meetings actually happen when parents and children gather around the dinner table to discuss the pressing issues of the day. So where were your family meetings when you were growing up?
0: Uh, similar, uh, like the more normal thing, not the way it goes with the troopers. No, we have, uh, had a very uh, democratic family environment where issues were discussed uh In depth and in the round, usually at the family dinner table. Nice. And that was, I think, an important switch between what most people experience and what the Trooper children experience. I mean, their father, because really he's a child star who's never quite lived up to the child star element of his life. And now he's trying to relive former glories through his own kids. Not only is he narcissistic, but he becomes quite controlling. And, uh, If you're lucky enough to grow up in a democratic family, that's a very different thing. And it it was uh, something that I wanted to explore. It's like, well, what if the children don't have a voice in the family? What if they're just told what to do? Well, the kind of things that happen in the book are what happens.
1: Well, you're on the edge of your seat with this John Lionel trooper who's so larger than life and yet so real and multidimensional. You're fascinated at every turn by how abusive, how womanizing, how much of a playboy he is, and a narcissist, and egomaniacal, and all the rest, and how could he get away with all of this? One of the characters, though, that actually really transported me, I found her to be such a beautiful, ethereal character, was the character of Marigold, who was Errol's favorite sister. And I can just see her in angel- wings and that fairy dust sort of, like I know a fleeting image of those wings will remain with me for a long time to come. Where was the inspiration for Marigold?
0: Oh, Marigold. Uh, So all of the sister characters, I would say, have roots in actual Hollywood Golden Age actors who really existed and who their father is trying to transform each of them into, but each of the sister characters also are composites of girls and later women that I've known in my life who I admired personality traits that they had. And uh, Marigold is certainly a composite of uh, many female friends I had, particularly in elementary school and high school, who had that kind of ethereal, sort of floating on air, artistic vibe about them. So really, like, The thing I I like about all four of the daughter characters are, I think they're all completely admirable women in completely different ways. And all of them have roots somewhat in Hollywood stereotype actress archetypes. But they also are based on different kinds of girls and women that I've admired and appreciated throughout my life.
1: Lovely. They're just oh the Joan Crawford character, the girl who wants to be the actress and is the favorite of her father is so fab they're all so wonderful. You have to read about these characters because they're you can't believe that all these people are living together. And I'm not going to give away the ending of the book, but what happens when they do one of their final performances and they really clash and it's quite an explosion <laughs> that happens. I love the character of the mother, Lily, who never got to realize her purpose or her bliss to be in line with this show as an actress. Can you tell us about the melancholy and the tragedy of this beautiful character?
0: I really loved writing the mother's character because I I have uh, great empathy and sympathy for individuals that, for whatever reason, have great talents and have great dreams and for one reason or another aren't allowed to reach their full potential, that just breaks my heart whenever I see that. And yeah, I I thought she would be the perfect diametrically opposed parent character to the father character. He's narcissistic, all about himself, domineering. He really is the type A stage director parent, Mm -hmm. where the mother, who I think subtly in the book you'll feel that she probably is a lot more talented than her husband Mm -hmm. ever was. And she's literally put in a position where she can't rise to the level of her own talent. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, she's meant to be the tragic counterpoint to the father character Mm -hmm. but that again not to give away key plot points but she also does a couple of very brave things Mm -hmm. that change the course of the story for her children Mm -hmm. which I'll leave that for uh, the reader to discover.
1: I heard you talk about your writing process and you've said that you only write when you're inspired and you do all of your editing at other times of the day and I found that fascinating. Can you tell us more about that?
0: Definitely. When I'm teaching creative writing, I don't try to make other writers into me. I don't try to say to succeed, you must write the way I do Mm -hmm. because no one does. Everyone finds their way to their own skill level. It's a journey you take solo, really. You find your Mm -hmm. own way in. But one thing that I always do mention is that I think you should create when you feel creative and you should do the work the revising and juggling things around and streamlining and reorganizing not when you feel creative, when you're not full of that juice. You should do the work when you feel like working. The creative process, getting it down for the first time should not be the work. That should be part of the play.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, So many things I want to ask you about. I'm going to throw out a few quotes from famous authors about writing, and I'd love to get your thoughts on them. And I'm going to start I have so many, but I'm going to ask you this one because this really resonated with me. And here it is. If you don't have time to read, you don't have time or the tools to write. Simple as that. And that was said by Stephen King.
0: Oh, I absolutely agree. In fact, if you're going to read uh, one book on writing, read Stephen King's On Writing. I think he's right about just about anything, at least as far as my writing style goes.
1: That's so cool. And also there's a quote from Saul Bellow that says, and this kind of relates back to what you were just talking about. You never have to change anything that you got up in the middle of the night to write is that because it comes from a pure place of passion and energy in that Jean-Jacques so state of preconceived, pre-reflective consciousness where it's coming from a dream or just from a real place of authenticity and
0: truth? Oh, I, I agree with that statement too. In fact, I, I would take it one step farther. The first draft of anything is that. It should be like waking up from a perfect dream and doing your best to get it down. Mm-hmm. Then once you've got it down, the way to look at revising is revising is getting all the junk out of the way that's obscuring the light of the original dream.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Lovely, lovely. The light of the original dream. That's so beautiful.
0: Yeah, and, and that is what revising is. It's getting rid of the things that are obscuring what's best about the story.
1: Standing in the way of just the pureness and the purity of what you're trying to say. I love Robert Frost's quote, No tears in the writer, no tears in the reader, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader. Do you cry and laugh and thrash and thrill with your characters? I had one writer tell me that she stomps around the room crying and laughing and living through her characters. What is it like
0: for you? Absolutely. I agree with that quote too. In fact, uh, a different version of that, uh, I think every writing class I've ever teach, and I I say something to that effect, that uh, it's especially when you're drafting a story, be there, be feeling what the characters are feeling. Not necessarily, you don't have to go to the extent of doing what they're doing, but in your (laughs) mind, you should be in the place where the characters are and be experiencing what they experience. And that's how you write good characters. Mm Be them, understand them in the moment that they're inhabiting in your story. And the characters will be authentic and the story will move.
1: So I'm asking you this as a writer myself. I've written two books. I'm working on a third, which is the most difficult because it's about bliss and finding your bliss. I take it very seriously and I really want to impart what I know to be true about it. So a lot of people say, I'd love to write a novel. Or I could have written that and everyone has the best of intentions, but they don't do it. And yet, even for seasoned writers and published writers, a lot of writers have a project that's really important to them and they get stuck. And I think they get stuck around this perfectionism that it's not quite what they dream it could be. And so they stop. What is your advice or your best tip on how to get started, but also how to stay committed to the process, even when it's not going exactly as you wish it would go? We're going to find out the answer to that million-dollar question when we come back after this short commercial break.
0: Finding Your Bliss is brought to you by CREATE, Canada's leading fertility centre for over 25 years.
2: CREATE is here for anyone struggling with infertility or in need of assisted reproductive technology to have children. CREATE is about cutting-edge science from highly skilled doctors. In unprecedented times like these, CREATE is about ensuring the safety of all patients and staff CREATE has made important changes to protect you by ensuring social distancing, wearing masks, as well as screening before entering. So what about the bundle of joy that you've been hoping would come into your family? CREATE Fertility Center is here for you. Visit createivf.com to keep up with the latest changes and learn about CREATE Fertility Center's comprehensive care for every fertility journey. Keep safe and healthy during these challenging days, remembering that life is about moments that we create together.
1: Well, we are back and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zuma Radio AM 740. And I'm here with author, performer and writing teacher Richard Scarsbrook. And we're having such an incredible conversation all about writing. And I just asked you, Richard, before the break, what happens when you're really stuck in your writing process? How do you keep going and not give up on
0: all of it? Well, what works for me is when I'm working on a sequence or a chapter or part of a larger project and it isn't coming out exactly the way I want it to be in the end. It's important to recognize one phase isn't necessarily the last phase. It's better to get something on paper or really on your computer for most of us, right? Mm -hmm. It's more important to get the scaffolding or the skeleton or the pile of bricks that you're eventually going to sort into the finished building. Mm. It's better to get some of that stuff done than to try and make it all perfect the first time. That's why so many writing teachers, and it's the truth, emphasize how important revision is. Mm -hmm. Because revision isn't a chore if you recognize it as revision is another opportunity that will come later to make what you're working on better than it already is. Mm -hmm. So if you're not satisfied with how something is right now, you can lean on the crutch of knowing that I can come back to this in a different frame of mind and make it better in a way that I can't right now.
1: Mm What was your process with the troopers? Did you sit at that computer every day, seven days a week at a certain time of day? Like, did you have a process? Because it's so wonderful. I'm just wondering what it looked like.
0: It's kind of hard to explain that because, yeah, that I, I, I used to treat writing a new book mostly as a day job. Mm-hmm. Now, not every day like we talked about earlier was creation. of the time I would devote to a book is creating a new chapter or a new sequence or whatever. Most of it is just going back to it and revising what's there. Like I said, to get the debris out of the way, to get the obstacles out of the way that are preventing the purest form of the story from shining through. Mm -hmm. That's most of the job. Mm -hmm. And I used to kind of do that as a day job where I would get up in the morning, work Mm -hmm. on the book, whether it was creating something new or revising it most days, and then have lunch, go back and work until four or five doing the same thing. The pandemic and having a small child changed that a lot, where, you know, I was responsible for taking care of Vivian most of the time during the day when she was home with us, because that's the way it was. I had the kind of flexible job where I could do that. And then I wound up being like I was when I first started writing, where it was I just grabbed the time whenever I could. I would work from midnight to four, or and uh, that should be reassuring to people that are trying to scrape together the time to write what they want to write. If you have to do it from midnight to four in the morning, whenever you can, you can or do it between making lunch for your kids and <laughs> ferrying them off somewhere. Do that. Yes. Do it whenever you're able to do it.
1: Whenever you're able to do it. How long did it take you from start to finish to do The Troopers from the idea to sending it off to the publisher?
0: Honestly, uh, for The Troopers, and I it seems from the feedback that the effort was worth it, but The Troopers took a lot longer time wise than most of my other books. Um, I usually will turn a book around from concept to submittable manuscript in about a two-year span. But the Troopers came together much more slowly and methodically than that. Uh, Let's say there, there was a lot more revising over a longer period of time that I think in the long run made it a lot better book.
1: Wow, it's incredible. I also love that it looks like a screenplay. It's divided up into these 32 scenes and there's dialogue and, you know, it actually looks like a screenplay. Was this a conscious decision to present the book in this way?
0: Definitely. Things that actually take place on camera in the book are done in screenplay format and uh, sequences that occur on stage or on their practice stage at home. Are done in play script format. And then the rest is kind of set up in a standard novel style. Yeah, that stylistic trick, I wanted to do that very early on. And in fact, uh, I dialed that back as I kept revising the book. There were more screenplay sequences and more stage play formatted bits in earlier versions of the book. And then my great editor at Cormorant, uh, Barry Jowett, he was just saying, but you know, people still want to read a novel. So he noticed that I was mostly doing the stage bits in one format and the bits that are on camera in screenplay format. And he said, maybe let's uh, pick and choose a bit more. So those technical bits are cooler, like they stand out. more. So I actually did more of that in an earlier version of the book, but I'm happy with the balance that we've hit in the book that you actually read.
1: I know you're transitioning into the screenwriting business. Can you tell us more briefly about that and what's different about writing a screenplay versus a novel?
0: Well, uh, with a novel, the narrative in a novel shows the reader what they see and what the characters are doing, where a lot of that in a screenplay is implied. It's kind of an unwritten rule that the director decides mostly what you're going to see and how things will appear and how things will be shot and so on. So you're really just giving baseline instructions in a screenplay Mm. as to what the characters are doing and you're giving, you know, the instruction exactly what they're saying, but there's a lot more room to paint that picture in a novel. So -hmm. it's interesting. I've done it both ways since I started doing this. I've taken novels and whittled them down to screenplay format But then for The Girl Who Could Not Die, my actual first science fiction book and screenplay, I wrote it concurrently. I I would write a scene in the screenplay first and then expand it into uh, the novel version. And I found that kind of a cool and effective way to do the job too. So it can be done both ways. Novel to screenplay, you're reducing the story down to its instructional elements and screenplayed a novel, you're kind of writing a roadmap of the story and then expanding on it in the novel version. Both nice. are kind of fun. I prefer nice. either one. They're both good.
1: Nice. Fascinating. Fascinating stuff. I want to come back to one more quote. I love these quotes by William Faulkner, which is, read, 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 read everything. Trash, classics, good and bad, and see how they do it. Just like a carpenter who works as an apprentice and studies the master, read, You'll absorb it. Then write. If it's good, you'll find out. If it's not, throw it out of the window. So my question for you is, how do you know when it's really good? Is it just something you
0: feel in your bones? It's a bit of both. I think uh, there is a, a feeling that happens when you get a scene the way you want it. When this kind of eureka moment where you've redrafted something and it's, ah, oh, there it is. This is done. As for the entire book, oh, my God, this is perfect. It feels done. I don't feel like that ever happens. Um, And that's where, uh, thankfully, I've uh, worked with a lot of good editors. And the more professional you become, the more you realize, you know, let's say Barry, my current editor, I think I've got this to the 90% point. Barry will tell me what the other 10% is. And invariably, he does.
1: That's so true. So I feel that way about Naira, who's the audio engineer and producer on this show who you just met. I met earlier and who
0: is wonderful.
1: Who is absolutely wonderful. And sometimes I can't see something that I might be missing and she'll just, you know, zero right in on it. So thanks, (laughs) Naira. Can you tell us about your writing classes and how they work? Like, can you paint us a picture of what happens in a writing class and can people still sign up for them? Are you still offering them?
0: Yeah, I actually am uh, still teaching for uh, George Brown College. I teach uh, short stories, Part One and Two, there, and I've been doing that for wow, I don't know, fifteen to twenty years. I'd have to go back and look at my own resume, but it's been a while. And I uh, I teach for the uh, Humber School for Writers too, and their correspondence based program. I love them both. Uh, For George Brown, the way the classes work is you show up wanting to write short stories. And the beautiful thing about teaching these sort of classes is the people that show up want to learn and want to produce good work. And uh, you're more than halfway there by wanting to write a good story. By the time you leave, you will. And I don't know, my classes, I try to front load them with, I'll tell you as much as I've learned about writing a first draft, all of the different tricks and tips there are to revising effectively, et cetera, et cetera. But the main thrust of the course is you're going to write a postcard story, you're going to write a short short, and you're going to write a full length short story. You'll bring it in and we'll live workshop it. And for your own benefit and for the benefit of all the other students in the class, we'll discuss this is what's working about your story and what is making it compelling. Because sometimes authors don't know what's actually working and good about their story. And these are the things like I mentioned earlier, that I think you can get out of the way so the light of the actual story shines through clearly. And uh, students uh, initially are a little bit fearful to share their work in a live environment, but it, it soon becomes a very supportive environment because everybody's aim is the same. Everyone wants to walk out of the room after 10 or 12 classes, having transformed the ideas they had for several great stories into great stories mm-hmm. and when everyone's aim is that you want your fellow students work to be great as well. And you start leaning on them for support, you know, mm-hmm. what makes this good? What do you like about it? What isn't working? And you can find out quickly, you know, if eight people in a class don't get a particular part of a story, it's your job to go back and fix it. Mm-hmm. If you know, everyone in the room is in tears at how brilliant and perfect a scene was. You know, you can leave it alone and move on to the next scene. That's so cool. So I find that guided uh, workshopping environment is really rewarding for most students and helps their work improve dramatically and fairly quickly.
1: That's so cool. For someone who just wants to start, whether it's an aspiring writer or a seasoned writer who needs a little revitalization and that feeling good boost, Where do you suggest people start when they're just stuck and they just want to get going?
0: Uh, Start. (laughs) Hit the start (laughs) button. Um, Hit the start button. (laughs) All of these things about writer's block and about the fear of imperfection stopping you from starting. No first draft is ever perfect. I don't care who you are or how much experience you have. I'll even tell you this. My first book, I think I revised maybe... Six or eight times before I started submitting it. Wow. The Troopers was revised probably 30 or 40 times before wow. I submitted it anywhere. Wow. But re- knowing you will revise your work later gives you the freedom to uh, just get it down while you feel passionate about an idea or a mm-hmm. scenario or a character or characters you've created. Bring the story, bring the characters to life. Just get it done. Sit down and get started. Mm -hmm. It won't be perfect the first time anyway. So just get the feeling of the story or Mm -hmm. a sketch of the characters down and go back to it and go back to it Mm -hmm. and go back to it until the story is what it meant to be the first time you sat down. Do a lot of these same rules apply to nonfiction? I agree that they do. Uh, I worked with an old elementary school friend, actually, who uh, has been working on a motivational nonfiction book. And I find a lot of the same rules that apply to fiction or poetry or anything else, they apply to writing nonfiction, too. Mm -hmm.
1: The same rules. That's very good to know. I have to go back to the book for a minute. I really believe that you knew the world of entertainment when I was reading The Troopers, and I love that you performed in roles on stage as Mr. Toad in Toad of Toad Hall, as mentioned off the top, and that's actually in the book. And I knew as I was reading this because I have a background in entertainment as well, and my daughter is actually in New York right now doing a master's in musical theatre, and she lives this world. (laughs) And so I just believed that you lived there and you lived in it. Can you tell us a little bit about your whole other career as a performer and what you love about performing?
0: Well, uh, much like uh, the story about starting on the path to writing fairly early in school, I loved being in plays and acting when I was a kid too. And every time there was a school play, I was like, oh, I've got to get in on this. But uh, I kind of dropped out of that for a while. And then when I moved to the small town of Petrolia to start teaching for the first time right out of teacher's college. I don't know. I was asked to play Gaston in (laughs) in a school production to play the bad guy because of the voice, I guess. Then uh, someone from the local community theater, from uh, Petrolia Community Theater, was in the audience watching their kid perform. And they said, hey, yep. pretty good stage voice. Do you want to come (laughs) audition for something? And this was the crazy thing. You mentioned Toad of Toad Hall. I hadn't been on stage or done any acting since I was a little kid, really. So I went and auditioned. And what happens, of course, I got cast as Toad. So this seriously, like half the script is Toad's dialogue, and <laughs> yes. song and dance numbers. And it's like, oh, my God, what have what I have gotten <laughs> to? But then it turned out it reopened this whole passion for me again, just because someone saw me doing a little walk on bit in a, a kid's play and invited me, you know, just opportunities present themselves like that. And it, uh, it is a good thing to grab them when you can. So I wound up with Petrolia Community Theater in the beautiful Victoria Hall, which is just a gorgeous small theater in wow. Petrolia. It's one of the nicest in the province. I wound up getting to act with these other fantastic actors and uh, great tech crew, amazing stage, beautiful venue. And it felt like being a professional actor without the pressure of being a professional actor. So really uh, the backstage described in the Troopers is very much like the backstage in the green room at Victoria Hall in Petrolia. Mm-hmm. But That's then hilarious. the front of house is totally different. I wanted that to be like a, an old school kind of former vaudeville hall with yes. the cherubs and the scrolls and the big. March and- <laughs> so the front of house is really different from Victoria Hall, but the backstage is basically exactly the same. Wow. I figured might as well have that play out in a space I'm familiar with.
1: I felt, speaking of that theater, and it was obviously a fictional theater, that it was almost like another character. It was so alive, and you really could imagine what it was like being in there, and you described it so beautifully that it just felt like another inanimate character, an actual character. Was that intentional?
0: Yeah, I I appreciate you mentioning that, too, because the Troopers are a multi-generational entertainment family. I mean, the grandmother was a child actor in British vaudeville theater, uh, or in music hall, and then uh, ran away from that to become a dancer in New York City. Then she eventually moves to Niagara, has John Lionel Trooper, he becomes a child star, etc, etc. So they're a family where the acting and performing roots go way, way back. And I wanted their home venue to have that same feel, to feel storied, and to feel like it was once a vaudeville hall and was once uh, uh, this kind of theater and is now another kind of theater, and Mm -hmm. it becomes something else by the end of the book. I wanted the venue to be... The second home of the family. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you noticing that it was.
1: No, it was fantastic. Well, there's four generations of these actors in this family, and it's, it's, you have to read it. It's fabulous stuff. Um, I have to ask you because you talk about your voice. You do have a great broadcasting voice. I imagine the diva grandmother's voice is being hello. Was it like that in your mind? Yeah. (laughs) With the bourbon and
0: (laughs) definitely. She's, uh, um, well, Also, I mean, she's a former uh, Ziegfeld Follies dancer, right? And uh, you know anything about those days. I mean, up into her 90s, she's smoking Cuban cigars and (laughs) drinking brandy. So she's going to have kind of one of those uh, powerful old actress kind of voices, you know? (laughs) Yes.
1: So great. What do you have coming up that you're the most excited about?
0: Oh, well, I mean, I hope springs eternal. I'm still hoping that uh, the Troopers has some more voltage or mileage left in it. Uh, I would like to see uh, film producers or maybe even a stage producer interested in adapting the Troopers because I would be very, very interested in uh, working with somebody actually on an adaptation For this story, I feel like it could be a good film. It could be a a good eight to ten episode series. So really, I would like to see the troopers go farther. And as you mentioned, I have a couple of other books that I've been working on that uh, I'm excited to get them out into the world, too. But I really I I would like to see uh, more people read the troopers and maybe for it to get on film or on stage, too.
1: What is bliss for Richard Scarsbrook?
0: Oh, bliss for Richard Scarsbrook. Well, basically everything that we've talked about. I, <laughs> I love writing. I love creating. I love teaching other people to find their path to writing and creating in their own way. And I have to admit, uh, my daughter Vivian and my partner Danielle are the two loves of my life. And they bring me great bliss. And uh, everything that I try to do is for them as much as anybody else. So that's my bliss. The things that I actually do and the partner and the child that I have make me very, very happy.
1: Isn't that wonderful? Love that. Love that. What is the best way for people to contact you and connect with you on social media so that they can sign up for your writing classes, get a copy of your book, The Trooper? What is the best way for people to get in touch with you?
0: Uh, The best place to start is probably just my website, which is just uh, Richard Scarsbrook, no caps, no dots, just (laughs) richardscarsbrook.com. Everything you would possibly want to know and then (laughs) more is there. And there's a contact form. I think there is... Uh, links to my classes. If not, that's easy enough to find. You can email me and ask anything that you really want to.
1: That's great. And on social media, because we're very connected on social media. So on Instagram, Facebook, how do people find you?
0: Uh, there, Same thing. Uh, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I have Facebook quite a bit. I still find Facebook is a decent platform for the creative type. So uh, I'm there. The links are all on my site. We will, if we're destined to find each other, we will find each other.
1: I love that. First of all, thank you so much, Richard, for being on the show today. It's really been delightful having you here. And uh, I really enjoyed every minute. As you can see, i wanted it to go on even longer than I'm allowed. <laughs>
0: Well, thanks, Judy. It was really, I was overjoyed when you invited me to be on the show. I mean, you've had kind of the A-list of Canadian celebrities have been guests on your show. And I was like, what? I got invited? <laughs> this is amazing. So I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. And you're a fantastic interviewer. I really enjoyed your questions also.
1: Thank you very, very much. Everyone, go and get this book. It's a great one. It's called The Troopers. Get it for Christmas. It's a great stocking stuffer. It's a great anything. Back to school. When you finally have some time on your hands, get Richard Scarsbrook's book, The Troopers. It's fabulous. Thank you again, Richard, so much for being here today. It was great having you. Thanks, Judy. We're going to go on a short commercial break. More with Finding Your Bliss and a brand new single from Sage when we come back. Back in a
0: moment.
1: We are back and this is Finding Your Bliss on Zoomer Radio AM 740 FM 96.7. And I'm so excited to share a brand new single from the talented singer-songwriter Sage. But first, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Emerging Toronto-based singer-songwriter Sage, the moniker of Sage Siegel, has been singing since before she could speak. Losing her father unexpectedly at the young age of three and growing up with a younger brother with nonverbal autism, singing became a way for her to connect with her feelings and emote to music very early on. At the age of 13, Sage auditioned for Mini Pop Kids, Canada's number one music brand for children. And making it past thousands of other kids to be a mini pop kid, she was chosen to sing, perform and record in studio for their Canada record label, KTEL. Over the years, Sage began sharing covers on YouTube and TikTok in addition to writing original music. And then in 2019, she had her first viral moment on TikTok, amassing 130,000 views on her cover of Halo by Beyonce. Since then, she has garnered a following of almost 100,000. And now at 19 years old, Sage has just finished her first year at university to study media, information, and techno culture. And she continues to perfect her performance and craft, doing what she loves best and what she was really born to do. Her debut EP is expected to be released in 2022. Sage's incredible tone and harmonic quality shine through with her new single, Too Good, produced by Stephen Conley. Too Good is the heartbreak anthem that keeps you optimistic about all the good things in life. As Sage says, quote, The realization that not all things go to plan and letting yourself go with the flow are ideas I think are encapsulated within this new single of mine. So, without further ado, let's all have a listen to Too Good by Sage. Forgive me for calling you up again. Due to international copyright law, podcasts are unable to include music. Music can only be played on the live radio broadcast. Finding Your Bliss airs every Saturday at 1 p.m. If you'd like to hear this artist's music, you can find the link to our Finding Your Bliss SoundCloud in the episode description. Oh my God, Sage, that was so phenomenal. Your song, Too Good, is so good each week we spotlight a singer songwriter or musician on the show if you're a singer please reach out to us and if you're an author artist yoga meditation or mindfulness expert or really anyone who has found and is following their bliss we would love to hear from you also what did you love about today's show are there any guests or topics you would love us to feature on finding your bliss write to us at fyb at finding i'm also a life coach if i can help you in any way let me know you can reach out and contact me at finding slash coaching i I'm also on Insight Timer, the number one free meditation app. And all you have to do is search up Judy Liebrach. And of course, you can always follow us at The Bliss Minute on Instagram and Facebook. And I have a prediction that Sage's song, Too Good, is going to be a real hit. Congratulations, Sage. That was phenomenal. I would like to thank our wonderful guests, Richard Scarsbrook, for being on the show today. And thank you to Sage for sharing your wonderful music with us. Also, thank you to Meg Ruffman, Siobhan Kylie, Lauren Kaminsky, producer and audio engineer, Naira Amani, associate editor and video editor, Sierra Brown Rodriguez, audio producer, Faz Kazi, and everyone here at Zoomer. And of course, a big thank you to our sponsor, the Create Fertility Center. For everyone here, I'm Judy Lee Brack reminding you all to take one step closer to finding your bliss.
0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.